The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case and do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC or the Invisible Choir podcast. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Because I want to remind the brethren on this channel that we are constantly dealing with liars and deceivers and we must be aware of what we watch, what we look at, what we hear because we are constantly dealing with lion, serpents, snakes, the enemies of Jesus Christ. That's why. But like mental illness is a, is, is a, is a very, very, very real thing. Um, myself, I have a mental illness. I'm on medication for it. And if I don't take my medication, I turn into like a total, a total lunatic. Like I get delusional and everything else, I have to be hospitalized. I heard someone shout, shut up, shut up. And then I heard two gunshots. And I thought I was dreaming. And so I heard three more. So I got up and I looked out the window and I saw a body on the ground. Fredericton is a city nestled along the west-central side of the St. John's River and also happens to be the capital of New Brunswick, Canada, a quiet place known for the arts. With both a low crime and unemployment rate, it's no wonder why Fredericton is described as a desirable place to live by those who reside there. Fredericton sits just an hour and a half from the U.S. border of Maine and has become one of the more popular cities in the eyes of those looking to migrate north. Its housing and real estate markets are significantly more reasonable in terms of affordability when compared to some of Canada's other major metropolitan areas. In fact, according to a study conducted by Maclean's magazine in 2020, Fredericton was named among one of Canada's safest places to live. And while the reputation that our friendly neighbors to the north are accepting and kind is certainly true more often than not, this doesn't mean that bad things don't happen here. You see, not everyone in Fredericton shares those same sentiments, extending open arms to newcomers entering the place they call home. So what happens when some of those new residents happen to be of a different race, or in this case, religion? Even when we examine a city like Fredericton, New Brunswick, a place not known for violent crimes by any means, those statistics don't exclude horrible acts from occurring here. If you look hard enough, you can find darkness looming around just about any corner in every community, whether in Canada, the U.S., or across the world. Whether or not we decide to remain blind to that fact, or whether we choose to acknowledge or more easily not acknowledge it, well, that's a whole different topic of discussion altogether. Most of us would agree that ignorance can certainly be bliss in some of the more innocent and trivial instances pertaining to the proverb. But what happens when that ignorance goes a step too far? 
what happens when it evolves and manifests into something much more severe, meeting at the crossroads of severe mental illness and violence. It was the morning of Friday, August 10th, 2018. The sun rose around 6.20 a.m. that day in Fredericton, and many of the city's residents were just waking up, having their morning coffee and preparing to head into work for the last day of the week before taking the much-needed break so many of us look forward to, with the weekend in clear sight. That's exactly what Donnie Robichaux and his girlfriend Bobby Lee Wright had on their minds as well. Up with the sun, the new couple had just recently started dating a few weeks before and were getting ready for a weekend away together. A trip to Centerville, a remote village roughly an hour and a half north of Fredericton. The two planned to attend a concert in the area, followed by a relaxing two days of zip lining and unwinding at a nearby cabin they had rented. As Donnie packed his suitcase, he glanced over to make sure Bobby Lee wasn't looking. Once certain that her attention was directed elsewhere, Donnie secretly tucks a single rose into his overnight bay, a simple yet romantic gesture that he planned on surprising his new girlfriend with once they arrived at their destination. The couple wholly and truly enjoyed one another's company. They were still in the midst of that intoxicating phase of any new relationship, when the simplest things are exciting and entertaining. They were also happy together, and they looked forward to carrying that positive energy with them into their vacation that lie ahead. Donnie worked at a nearby auto store, and though he was always up early, this Friday was different, as he couldn't wait to get away. His plan was to get up earlier than usual, pack the car, drop Bobby off at a friend's house, head to work at the auto store, and then pick up Bobby after his shift and hit the road before rush hour. But as Donnie Robichaux and Bobby Lee Wright walked out of the apartment complex and into the parking lot at 237 Brookside Drive, those plans drastically changed when the two heard a loud blast coming from somewhere unknown, but certainly nearby, from an extremely close range. Donnie's neighbor, David McCaubrey, heard the blast too, just a few apartments down. Immediately awoken from his sleep due to the loud noise, David jumps out of bed at approximately 7.07 a.m., dazed and confused, unsure of what was going on or what he had just heard. At first, David didn't think much of the sound, other than the fact that it was extremely loud for that time of morning, eventually concluding that it must have been kids in the complex lighting fireworks off. For about five minutes after the initial blast, there was nothing, just silence. But then, out of nowhere, David hears the noise again as it starts back up, this time more blasts in rapid succession. John Gibbons, another resident of the complex, also hears the sound but even louder and seemingly closer in proximity to that where David McCaubrey had been located. Gibbons also assumes the loud blast to be fireworks, but quickly realizes that a sound that deafening, coming from directly under his bedroom window, had to be something much more powerful than a Roman candle or recreational stick of dynamite. As the loud cracks and pops continued on, another concerned resident from within the multi-building apartment complex decided to phone 911. Officer Sarah Burns had just gotten off her designated shift at 7 a.m., being that this was the changeover time for a new officer to relieve her of duty and take her place. Fredericton police officers often shared vehicles, swapping patrol cars when one officer completed their shift and the next clocked in to begin theirs. 
Burns had accidentally forgotten a personal belonging inside of her cruiser, remembering just as Rob Costello was about to take the vehicle and head to the call at 237 Brookside Drive alone. Burns decided, however, that she might as well ride along with Costello, since she had already returned to the cruiser to retrieve her belongings. Officers Rob Costello and Sarah Burns showed up at the scene at approximately 7.10, just three short minutes after the first 911 call came in. But upon arrival and after pulling into the shared parking lot of buildings C and D, they realized this was much more serious of an incident than either one of them were prepared for. Burns and Costello almost immediately noticed a male lying face down on the pavement, still gripping onto a bag in his hand with a tackle box and fishing poles by his side. But before officers could even assess the scene and see that Bobby Lee was slumped over in her vehicle with the windshield blown out, Burns and Costello were hit. Justin McLean, a resident of Building D, looked out his window after hearing several more shots and saw multiple bodies laying motionless in the middle of the parking lot. It was abundantly clear to everyone from within the complex walls that this was not firecrackers but gunfire, and that the shots were continuing. Panicked residents peered through their windows as the loud bangs continued going off. Yet still, no one seemed to know where the shots were coming from, as the formation of the four buildings was structured as a semicircle, with the terrifying noises of bullets reverberating off one brick wall before bouncing off another. By this time, 59-year-old Lawrence Perrin had been walking up the driveway to his apartment after returning home from his morning walk. He stopped dead in his tracks after hearing the screams of a woman, later believed to have been Officer Sarah Burns, immediately followed by more gunfire. Parent quickly looks up to see the barrel of a long gun protruding from the top corner window of Building C, as quick bursts of smoke flared up with each shot. More calls to 911 came in, as residents reported an active shooter coming from one of the apartment windows. Sergeant Jason Forward was in the cruiser just behind Burns and Costello, but by the time he arrived, the officers were already down. As the shots continued flying through the air, Sergeant Forward knew that he couldn't get to the officers in time without being hit himself, so he quickly rolled out of his vehicle and crawled to the side of one of the buildings and out of harm's way. Other neighbors reported to 911 screams coming from the shooter's window, exclaiming aloud remarks something to the effect of, Keep coming, you'll get it next. The unidentified gunman then changes his trajectory, aiming his weapon east, now firing into the windows of Building A. A woman named Paris saw her husband, Syed, running to their ground floor window from inside Building A. He catches a glimpse of the man's face, seemingly staring right at him from the crow's nest view of the top floor apartment, yelling aloud before opening fire once more. The windows of the couple's apartment shatter as the two duck for cover, the glass ricocheting and exploding inside of their home. By this time, even more officers arrive on scene, including SWAT teams geared in bulletproof vests and armored vehicles. As authorities set up their perimeter, snipers also gained access to one of the apartment building roofs, ready to take the necessary action to disable the gunman at all costs. Helicopters then began swarming overhead. Residents hid inside of their homes as the sounds of sporadic gunfire and sirens were heard throughout the property. At 7.47 a.m., the first warning goes out to the public via the Fredericton Police Department's Twitter page. We are asking people to avoid the area of Brookside Drive this morning due to an ongoing incident. We will provide more details as soon as we can. 
At 7.53 a.m., less than 10 minutes later, a second alert goes out. Fredericton police are responding to the Brookside Drive area. The public is asked to avoid the area and stay in their homes with the doors locked, at this time for their safety. By now, the word had spread rapidly throughout the Fredericton community. As local residents took to social media, frantically calling out to their loved ones thought to have been in the vicinity of the shooting, warning them to take caution. With SWAT teams in place and yellow caution tape, locking off all entrances and exits to the apartment complex at 237 Brookside Drive, yet another update goes out by police via Twitter, this time confirming the worst at 8.17 a.m. Shooting. At this time, we can confirm multiple fatalities. The incident is ongoing. More information will be made available when we can. Please continue to avoid the area of Brookside Drive between Main and Ring Road. Police forced entry into several apartments located on the top floor of Building C, trying to get the neighbors out of the building that had been closest to the active shooter and escorting them to safety. Other officers from the ground below deployed tear gas from an armored truck into the already broken window as the gunmen continued to fire. At 9.15 a.m., after fire from inside the building had periodically ceased, police approached the suspect's apartment door with a battering ram. With a forceful thrust, a hole was blown through the unit's entrance, just wide enough for police to quickly toss a tear gas canister inside in an attempt to flush the man out. The RCMP then sent a robotic camera into the smoke-filled apartment. Once officers gained a visual of the suspect, they were left no choice but to take action before more people's lives were put at risk. The suspect is then seen remotely from the robot's camera feed, attempting to place a towel over the lens to disable the authorities' view. Police waited patiently outside the shooter's door until that opportune moment when the gunman let his guard down and took his hand off the rifle. Officers then jumped at their chance. Constable Jean-Francois Comot was the first officer to enter the apartment. He was almost certain that himself or one of his fellow officers would be shot, but they had no choice. He had to be stopped. Upon gaining entry, Comot sees the gunman raise a rifle at him, ready to fire. But before he could pull the trigger, the officer lunges toward the gunman, tackling him using his ballistic shield and punching him several times in the face as another officer wrestles the rifle from his hands. Finally, the gunman was detained after a two-hour-long standoff and was brought safely into custody. The suspect suffered a single gunshot wound to his abdomen and was immediately transported to a nearby hospital. The people of Fredericton were left in shock, particularly the residents at 237 Brookside Drive. The entire community was ordered to shelter in place for hours, forced to listen to the exchange of gunfire happening just outside their doors. Police were able to escort other residents to safety that had been on the same floor as the gunmen. These folks, as well as others nearby, would take cover at a local Tim Hortons coffee shop, located in a strip mall a few hundred yards away from the scene of the crime. As police assessed the damage and gathered what information they currently had, the media was on scene almost immediately, looking to speak to anyone who had witnessed the horrors that had just taken place. I heard someone shout, shut up, shut up, and then I heard two gunshots, and I thought I was dreaming, and so I heard three more, so I got up and I looked out the window and I saw a body on the ground. 
body of a man, a woman? Man. I was woken up by what I thought was fireworks. Uh, I didn't realize it was morning. And then I saw it was daylight out, and there was about five, like, I'd say three to five minutes between the first shots I was hearing, and that's kind of when I knew it wasn't fireworks. Um, woke up to a bunch of texts, making sure I was safe, and looked out my window and saw a bunch of police officers and people standing all around and didn't really know what was going on. Any idea how many shots you heard? I'd say like between 10 and 20. It's really concerning. Um, like this neighborhood, nothing really happens, like to this magnitude anyways. It was obvious to everyone in the community by now that those noises were most certainly not fireworks, as police had reported live on their Twitter account while the events unfolded and the public had already been made aware that there were indeed four fatalities. But who were those victims? And who would commit such a terrible act in the quiet Canadian town of Fredericton, New Brunswick? It wasn't until a full 24 hours later that a press conference was held by Fredericton police, identifying both the shooter and the individuals that had tragically lost their lives. We appreciate your understanding that the investigation into confirming the identities of these two victims and the next of kin notification took time. We offer our most sincere condolences to the families and friends of 42-year-old Donald Robichaud and 32-year-old Bobby Wright, both of Fredericton. Today, a 48-year-old Fredericton man was charged with four counts of first-degree murder in this incident. Matthew Vincent Raymond was charged in the morning of August 11th with the deaths of 45-year-old Constable Lawrence Rob Costello and 43-year-old Constable Sarah May Helen Burns and our citizens Donald Robichaud and Bobby Wright. While charges have been laid, the investigation into the shootings is ongoing. It will be up to the investigators to determine what led to yesterday's shootings. Please know that this is a complex investigation and it must be thorough in nature. Forty-two-year-old Donnie Robichaud, his girlfriend, 32-year-old Bobby Lee Wright, Officer Rob Costello, and Officer Sarah Burns all lost their lives the morning of August 10, 2018. Donnie left behind two young boys. He was a lover of music and had played in several local bands in the Fredericton area. He was a kind soul that enjoyed the simpler things in life, such as riding his Harley-Davidson motorcycle whenever he had the chance. Melissa Robichaud, Donnie's ex-wife, recalls what a great man and father he had been to their children. I was proud to walk around with him on my arm. Very proud. Um, that was the base. He was strong. He was protective. He, he just a good man. Melissa then goes on to explain that she had plans to pick up their two children from Donnie's place the morning of the shooting, but that for some reason she decided to pick them up the night before instead. She spoke with reporters after the tragic loss of her children's father, expressing selflessly not how close she came to danger but rather how close her children came to meeting a similar fate to that of their father. I was supposed to be there outside with them. Do you feel like you missed disaster narrowly? Not so much me. I feel like my kids could have been shot. 
Bobby Lee Wright is remembered by the ones that loved her the most as selfless and someone who always put the needs of others before her own. She was a career home support worker, nicknamed Bubbles affectionately by her loved ones, who believed the term of endearment described her personality perfectly. Officer Sarah Burns, killed in the line of duty almost immediately after responding to the call that she wasn't even supposed to respond to, yet selflessly decided to help with, would leave behind a husband and three children. Her 12-year-old son, Anderson, would go on to say this about his mother. If you looked up the definition of a good person, then the name Sarah Burns would show up. She was such a kind soul. Rob Costello was a 20-year police veteran. He left behind his partner, Jackie McLean, and his four children. Grieving the loss of the man she loved so deeply, her pain is palpable as she recounts that the two had both realistically acknowledged the danger of Costello's profession before his death. Yet the married couple could never have anticipated a danger such as this, one that would ultimately take his life after responding to what he thought was a routine 911 call. He really wanted to make sure that I knew what I was getting into by being with someone in law enforcement. But I, I knew that this could happen. We had a, a couple of rules in our relationship. The first rule was no dying and he promised me that he was never going to die and the other thing was that he he always told me that no matter what happened on the job that he would always come home and that's the hardest part for me right now is that he hasn't come home that evening after the shooting at around 11 p.m Rob Costello's partner, Jackie, would express her pain, sorrow, and complete and utter heartbreak via social media with this statement. This morning, the most amazing man kissed me goodbye as he headed to work. This evening, I lay in our bed knowing that kiss will never happen again. As the tight-knit community mourned the loss of their four innocent members, the residents of this town were reeling and in search of answers. Their families, distraught and confused, kept coming back to those two crucial questions shared amongst them all. Why and who? 48-year-old Matthew Vincent Raymond, the shooter in this case, would survive with a single gunshot wound to his stomach and was now being charged with four counts of first-degree murder. But who was he? And what compelled him to go on such a violent rampage at 7 o'clock in the morning? Those that knew Matthew were in complete shock when they turned on the news to see the face of the man they knew to be calm in nature. Here is Joy Sullivan, one of Matthew Raymond's neighbors for many years. He was sweet to talk to. Another senior lady and I always had a comical chat with him in the hall. He wasn't over vocal at all, but he was just sweet, smiled, nice, nice looking dude. Stephen Carter, another neighbor, was just as baffled to learn that the man he had known since his youth would wind up committing such a violent and heinous act. He came along one day with his lawnmower and said, hey, mister, do you want your lawn done? Something different in Matthew Snap. It's not the boy that I knew. It's not the boy that I knew.
Raymond lived with his mother for most of his adult life, holding menial jobs such as a supermarket clerk and helping out at a local ice arena in town. He had only just recently gotten a place of his own, the top corner apartment of Building C at 237 Brookside Drive. He was a loner. Raymond kept to himself for the most part, but co-workers remember him as just being shy or reserved. Chris Carr, a man that drove the Zamboni at the Aitken University Center, did see characteristics of anger come from Raymond at times. However, when the two worked together almost four years before the shooting took place, Raymond would help out around the rink, moving hockey nets, cleaning locker rooms, and running general maintenance in the facility. Chris Carr does remember one incident regarding Raymond that, looking back, may have been a sign of his true colors. During an afternoon shift at the ice arena, Raymond was seen by employees screaming at a group of kids that stayed on the ice a little longer than usual after their scheduled practice had ended. He was worked up, you could tell. It took him a bit to calm down from that, him getting aggravated. Surely Chris Carr never thought that that moment of unprovoked anger could ever be an indication of the extreme acts of violence Matthew Raymond would commit years later. Chris Carr did, however, remember Raymond being a bit, quote, off, as he described detached from reality in a sense, especially when speaking about video games. Carr told the media that Raymond almost resembled a child in regards to his excitement about Call of Duty, a first-person shooter game. He spoke of his actions and achievements in the game as if they had all happened in real life. Carr remembers this as being odd, but naturally thought nothing of it at the time. Raymond also rode his bicycle to and from work, and would say hello to familiar faces he saw around town. Yet, being the loner that he was, no one ever truly knew what was going on with Matthew Raymond behind closed doors. In the year leading up to the shooting in 2018, as Raymond withdrew more and more into his seclusion, unfortunately, by this time, it was too late. Yet, only then would authorities catch a glimpse of the mind of a man that was slowly slipping into madness after thoroughly searching his apartment. He left behind critical clues for investigators that would ultimately reveal a man who was severely and dangerously mentally ill. As authorities began to collect evidence from inside Matthew Raymond's apartment, searching for a potential motive, the first thing they noticed was the clutter, a disarray of Raymond's personal items scattered about. On his bed were several newspapers, with the handwritten words, Serpent and Hoax, scribbled across the front page. Authorities then noticed a magnifying glass next to one of the newspapers, as if Raymond had been using the instrument to study the words more closely and in extreme detail. Officers also noticed a large cache of high-caliber ammunition sitting atop his bedsheets. Following this discovery, police then came across two firearms, one being the Siminov SKS rifle that was used to kill the four innocent victims. A notebook was also unearthed among the heap of mess, and in red handwritten Sharpie marker, covered in pink speckles from the tear gas canister that had exploded in the apartment just hours before, read the following. You serpents picked the wrong man to test. I am not alone. He's watching you. Followed by the numbers 331 and 33 and one-third. A calendar was then discovered that had the dates of August 4th through August 9th marked with red X's, and 666 written between August 3rd and 9th. The shooting took place on the 10th. Confused, police continued in their search. They looked in Matthew's freezer, 
only to find a box of wild blueberries with 666 drawn on the front packaging. Finally, authorities would reach the storage closet where Raymond had been shooting from, aiming his rifle at innocent people down below, positioning the firearm on a blue Rubbermaid container with miscellaneous bicycle parts dispersed atop its lid. The repetitive theme of Demons 666 and strange numerology were certainly most noteworthy to police, but only after confiscating his computer and hard drive would authorities realize just how paranoid, hateful, and utterly obsessed with a quote, end of times, apocalyptic theology that Matthew Raymond actually was. After viewing the contents of his computer, it would eventually become somewhat clear that Matthew Raymond actually believed almost everyone around him was either a demon or a serpent, otherwise known as a shapeshifter. For anyone that has never heard of these kind of conspiracy theories, naturally, this might sound bizarre. But when diving deep into the forums of Reddit and the countless videos available on YouTube, you might be surprised to learn that there is a vast community of people that hold these same beliefs. A group of folks that believe celebrities, politicians, and famous actors are actually sent by the devil, disguising themselves as humans in order to take over the world. Raymond specifically corresponded with one conspiracy theorist by the name of Rob Lee, otherwise known as Rob Lee Truth on YouTube. He engaged with the channel online and at length for the majority of the entire year leading up to the shooting. While studying his YouTube videos of shapeshifters, Raymond became a devout follower, beginning to piggyback on Lee's theories of how immigrants were allegedly descending upon residential communities in large groups, disguised and sent by Satan to destroy mankind. This type of content is not hard to find and is only a few clicks away for anyone willing to go down the virtual rabbit hole. Rob Lee's original YouTube account was taken down for reasons unknown whether because the contents were against YouTube community standards or that Rob Lee himself deleted the page. A new channel would eventually emerge in July of 2018 under the channel name Rob Lee Truther, just a month before the shooting occurred. Lee rambles at length in each of his recent videos, running his cursor over freeze-frame images of people's faces, showing what he sees as abnormalities of the eyes and facial structures of those he believes to be demons. The people showcased most times are those of politically charged events, such as the Ferguson protest in Missouri after the death of Michael Brown. Lee scrubs frame by frame in an attempt to prove that the facial features of those in the videos cannot be human, stopping at parts of the video where those featured are blinking or awkwardly in between sentences, claiming that their wide open mouths or partially shut eyes are those of serpents or the devil in disguise. Lee will also scale in the video size, zooming in on individual faces, concentrating on their pixelated tongues, followed with captions mentioning the resemblance to that of a reptile. He goes on to mix in dramatic music beds under news class clips of anchors speaking on recent same-sex marriage laws, suggesting that they too must be demons in disguise that came to push their political agendas on modern-day society. The amount of content, even on Rob Lee's recent YouTube channel, created just a month before the Fredericton shooting in 2018, is extensive to say the least. The amount of time and energy dedicated to what he believes to be spreading the word of God, often tying into religion, warning his followers of these demonic symbols through consistent 45-minute long uploads. Lee is undoubtedly consumed with his pursuit of exposing these, quote, shapeshifters, 
consisting of poorly edited Photoshop slides and 480p video clips. Lee has uploaded one of these videos weekly since the new page became active in 2018. Among the videos, religion is perhaps the most overt and repeated theme throughout. One slide found in one of the most recent videos examines the meaning behind the number 13, explaining how it represents the devil. So we know one-third of the devils fell from heaven after the war in heaven. We know one-third equals 33 and one-third. So we have 33 and a 13. If we add them up, we get 46, which is another huge demonic number. If we then divide 46 by 2, we get 23, which is also another important demonic number. A cult also uses signs and numbers backwards. For example, 13 will be used as 31, and 23 will be 32, and 46 will be 64. These numbers are in our faces daily. If you learn to see them, you can spot the lies. Lee goes on to point out recurring examples of the numbers 13 and 33 in the media and entertainment industries, claiming that these numbers represent demons in our society, particularly in television, movies, and music, used as a tool by the devil to corrupt society as we know it. Here is Rihanna. Notice the title of her album is 7-7 Live. It's called Order Out of Chaos. Notice she has the one eye, Aleister Crowley. This is in your face. Notice the black and white Masonic checkerboard. Let's move on with 33. Club Disney, 33. This is important because Disney has played a huge role, huge role in the influence on even adults, but especially children. Three. Based on the real life event, when a golden copper mine collapses, it traps 33 miners underground for how long? 69 days. Turn the nine upside down, what do you get? 66. Easy, easy people. Now, this one is incredibly telling because it's so blatant and right in the face. You can save up to $13,311. Really? Really? Notice that the ram doesn't even look like a ram anymore. The ram looks more and more like the devil. Rob Lee also believes that outer space does not exist, stating in one of his lengthy videos, quote, If real, why use CGI? And although this may sound humorous to most of us, what happens when this information or misinformation is obtained by someone who is severely mentally ill. The same shared obsession with demonic numerology, symbols, and their perceived connection to evil were also found on Matthew Raymond's computer and written in his personal notebooks after police collected evidence from his home following the shooting. It's apparent that Raymond followed Lee's YouTube page on a regular basis and had even corresponded with him quite extensively as seen from a 33-page police record of their conversation for roughly a year up to three months before the killings occurred. And yes, you did hear that right. The police report was 33 pages long. The father guides. He picks the time. Are among the few legible lines seen throughout a disarray of incalculable mathematical equations, chaotically scribbled throughout a digital document found on Raymond's hard drive, presumably created using a software program such as Microsoft Paint. Consistent with Lee's slides found in several of his YouTube videos were the numbers 333 and 666 drawn frantically, together with random combinations of numbers added and subtracted together, atop and overlapping the text found on Raymond's computer. Although to most, Lee's videos and beliefs may come off as incoherent and as sporadic ramblings, consistent with those of a mere conspiracy theorist, there are more devout followers of this rhetoric than meets the eye. At the time of this publication, Rob Lee currently has 852 subscribers on his YouTube channel, most of whom are quite active in expressing both their gratitude 
and support of Lee for exposing the quote, truth. Though Lee's earlier YouTube account, which Matthew Raymond frequented and participated in by commenting on several of the videos, has since either been deleted or taken down, you can start to piece together a picture of what Matthew Raymond's mind state may have been after immersing himself and engaging with this like-minded community. While members of everyday society may write off or label this particular community as, quote, crazy, to those who actually ascribe to these ideologies, they become more resolute in their beliefs with the support of their peers. Power in numbers, if you will, where theories most would consider fringe at best are amplified among those who thoroughly believe in them, while their detractors are often silenced or entirely ignored by the community. When a large group of people come together in agreement over the same belief system, and subscribe only to those beliefs, it starts to become more understandable how one might find their ideas to be the only truth within the world that they themselves have created. Collectively, this online community views certain individuals as a threat, implying that they must be destroyed before it's too late. The shapeshifters, or the reptilians sent by the devil to take over the human race. By reading the recent and existing comments on Lee's new YouTube page, it is frightening to learn that these ideologies could very well have been a catalyst for the actions later taken by an already mentally unstable individual. Raymond and Lee's relationship began to deteriorate, however, after Lee publicly announced that he knew there were demons present among his YouTube subscribers. Lee stated, I'm aware that serpents, shills, and fake Christians are on my channel, and a comment under one of his own YouTube videos. Matthew Raymond responded with, When I know them, they need to be checked and outed. I'm sick of being surrounded by these beings. An online feud incited and grew between the two men when Raymond sent a list of usernames to Lee, whom he believed to be shapeshifters, impersonating the human form that were actively commenting on Lee's YouTube page. Raymond demanded that Lee call out these devils in disguise and ban them from the site, to which Lee refused replying with something to the effect of, No, I'll look crazy if I accuse people without proof. Lee and Raymond corresponded virtually from the fall of 2017 until the summer of 2018, when they had a falling out, just before Raymond would fulfill his delusional duties of ridding the earth of those he perceived to be demons. During the trial, the defense chose to play several of Lee's videos that Raymond had ripped and saved to his computer, watching repeatedly throughout the entire year leading up to the events of August 10th. By February of 2018, just months before the shooting, police had calculated that the amount of images and video pertaining to this content were upwards of 15,000 files. There were also GoPro videos on Raymond's computer, where he would film the sky and helicopters passing by, expressing fear that he was being watched. Raymond's lawyers used these videos as a tool to prove to the court that their client was sick and should not be found guilty by reason of insanity. When the videos were shown to the jury, Raymond quickly perked up in his seat, transitioning his body suddenly from his previously despondent demeanor to someone who was now clearly curious and intrigued. His full attention was on the screen as he intently watched as the visuals played throughout the courtroom, suggesting that his interest in this content had not since faltered even after murdering four innocent and unsuspecting victims. We reached out to Rob Lee personally to see if he would comment on his possible role in influencing Raymond's way of thinking and his unconscionable actions. However, we did not receive a response back. I suppose as true crime podcasters, 
we are exactly the type of shapeshifter that Lee would actively avoid. Regardless, the combination of paranoia, seclusion, and endless support through an online echo chamber seems to have been the recipe for a disaster that would ultimately claim four innocent lives the morning of August 10, 2018 in Fredericton, New Brunswick. Charles LeBlanc, a local Fredericton street blogger, also has a YouTube channel. On his public forum, he showcases mostly point-of-view style interviews, speaking with individuals he finds interesting when walking around the city. LeBlanc is another consistent content creator, showcasing raw yet honest human interest pieces on his YouTube channel. LeBlanc, certainly not shy, is often shown running up to his interviewees on the spot, totally unscripted, in an impromptu, guerrilla-style journalism-type approach. And while LeBlanc's quirky content is surely entertaining, it wasn't until roughly a month after the Fredericton shooting that he would remember a video he took of the man he simply knew as Matt on the street from about one year before. When Charles revisited the video, he couldn't believe that this was the same Matt that just murdered two innocent civilians and two police officers. June 3rd, 2017. Charles LeBlanc was going about his normal routine of walking the streets of downtown Fredericton with his camera by his side when he noticed a man standing alone preaching loudly at any and everyone that passed by. The man was wearing a handmade sandwich board sign loosely harnessed around his neck and had been standing outside of the New Brunswick Legislative Building. That man was Matthew Raymond. Curious to hear what he was promoting or protesting, LeBlanc saw this as an opportunity to create some content for his YouTube channel and decided to break out his camera to speak with the man. What you're telling me, there's some, the Muslim, the Muslim, you, you remind me of a uh, Donald Trump. But anyway, that's beside the point. <laughs> what did you say about Newfoundland and St. John? I've Newfoundland. heard that in St. John's that they, they were told to take down the cross off of a church. The Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, yeah. They, you know that's bullshit. You know that's bullshit. You know right? it's happening in Britain. This stuff is happening worldwide. This is not just in New You have a church, a Catholic church that's been there for a hundred years, and some Muslim shows up and they say, it offends us, remove the cross from yes. the church. That's bullshit. Come on. Not a chance. It's happening. When I say not a chance, it means it is happening. They are doing They can't do that. They go I can understand the classroom. They, they, in the classroom, I can understand that, but not remove the cross from on top of the Catholic church. There's a whole group of them coming in and they're demanding things. It's not just one person coming in. There's numerous coming in at the time and they're saying, this offends us and they want it gone. They take it off in the in the uh, hallways. There's no yeah, yeah, the hallway. We're talking about a cross on top of a church. Yes. Where St. Peter's built the church, the, the foundation. Mm -hmm. This is the stone. This is the one that's going to go out for a century. And you're telling me... In the Middle East, you are not allowed no, no, to have no, no, a no. church. <laughs> What Raymond is referring to here is a crucifix that was taken down from the exterior of the St. Matthew's Public School building, located in St. John's, Newfoundland, back in 2013. The event took place after a parent expressed her concern to the school board, voicing her opinion that religious symbols should not be present within a public school building. Though this was not a church as Raymond had falsely stated, but rather a public elementary school, the sign of the cross is still very common in other schools throughout Canada. The denominational school system, 
or schools associated with religion in this particular province, however, were eliminated by the Constitution Amendment, also known as the Newfoundland Act in 1998. Since that time, Newfoundland has transformed from a denominational school system to a public school system. So why is this relevant? The importance is the examination of the sources from which Raymond is gaining his, quote, facts from. The same sources that have contributed to Matthew Raymond's misinformation, distorted beliefs, and his subsequently tragic actions. It doesn't matter. There, there are roughly, I heard roughly about 2,000 Muslims there. Yeah. And when you have numerous people gathered, you have more power. When you have yeah. more power, you can make more demands. Yeah, They're making demands because this is what they do in every country they go to. And they make demands and they make this appear. Yeah, that's the motion. Yeah, never mind that shit. The motion Raymond is referring to is written on his sign, pointing to it as he struggles to debate his point with LeBlanc. M103, or Motion 103, was a law that recently passed as a nationwide plan of action to fight against racism, condemning Islamophobia in particular in the country of Canada. Clearly not in alignment with these ideas of equality and freedom to the Muslim community as a whole, Raymond protested often trailing wildly into tangents and repeatedly pointing to his nearby indecipherable sign. The only comprehensible phrase to anyone walking by visible might be the words, No to Sharia Law, written at the top of his handcrafted anti-Islam billboard. From Robert Lee's YouTube page to rebelmedia.com, which he mentions during his interview with LeBlanc, it's clear that Raymond is consumed by and only trusting of these types of alternative news outlets. Rebel Media also known as Rebel News, is a Canadian far-right-winged website that strongly promotes the anti-Muslim belief system known as counter-jihad. The whole foundation of this particular website is based on the ideology that a pending Western civilization apocalypse will occur at the hands of Muslims who enter and live within Western boundaries. After learning the contents of these websites, it's a bit more apparent where Matthew Raymond has acquired his influences from. What got order. you going on, on, on this? Something I must saw, have clicked. I saw a video, and it was based in Britain. And he was saying how the women had to, they couldn't go out, they had to be very careful. There, there's all these problems with the migrants. And he, they're called migrants because... Syrians, so they were coming Syrians, yeah. is that what you're talking about? Mm, that's what they say they, they are, mm. but in Europe, they are, are not, they are coming through, there's mostly males, mm. okay, mostly males, this is not all families, mm. there's boatloads coming in, yeah. and there's no talk of it, there's nothing on the news. Now, ISIS, that doesn't mean that every Muslim is ISIS. That is definitely not the case. Wow, you're making sense there's, here. There's, wow. There, hey, this is good. There's the extremist, the full extremist side. But then there's the people that will, they will not report what, if they know anything, there's been studies done. They are not studies. They did, a, a, oh God, I just lost the word. While LeBlanc seemingly tries to humor and attempt to understand the man's warped logic, Raymond is heard here for a brief moment, almost making sense when he states, quote, not every Muslim is a member of ISIS. He misses the mark, however, when he continues by claiming that although some are not members of ISIS, they will not report if they, quote, know anything. Report what, you ask? Well, unfortunately, Raymond doesn't seem to know either, as he loses his train of thought and his fumbled explanation comes to a halt. I've just recently heard that there's actually a flag flying on our parliament that is not of this country and is actually of Islamic. 
a flag is flying right Islamic now. Islamic flag with uh, first ISIS took over. Moon. Yeah, I don't. He never said that it was the. I said is it the black flag, and I don't think he replied yes. So no, I think it might. It's gonna have a crescent moon. Come I don't on, know come on, come on, come on. What kind of drugs are you on? Come on, I want some. This is. It sounds like if you're in La La Land. No, no. Although LeBlanc is clearly in disagreement with whatever point Raymond grapples with and fails to convey, the interaction between the two seems lighthearted enough in nature. LeBlanc is heard cracking jokes and even making fun of Raymond at times. Yet the video ends with Matthew Raymond smiling at the camera. While the exchange between the two men is certainly odd and disorienting at times, no one could have anticipated that this video would soon offer an inside look into a tragedy brewing, soon to unfold. That tragedy would not be the apocalypse brought on by the Muslims, as Raymond had wholeheartedly prophesied, but rather a domestic terrorist attack incited by Matthew Raymond himself against his own community roughly one year later. Okay, this guy from down the States wants to interview me about uh, about Matthew Raymond. It's called Invisible Fire. Almost three years after the horrific tragedy that claimed the lives of four Fredericton residents, we were able to catch up with Charles LeBlanc, the man who interviewed Raymond on the street a year before the shooting. We were curious to learn more about how his interaction took place and to hear Charles LeBlanc's take on what it was actually like having such a casual conversation with such an unknowingly dangerous man. Matthew Raymond was, he was not known to the police. Matthew Raymond was a guy that was uh, paranoid. He would always approach me about issues. I would always call him the paranoid guy, the paranoid guy. Okay, Matthew Raymond was a unknown individual. First time I met Raymond, Matthew was uh, on the street. He was riding his bike and he approached me like many other individuals. They wanted to tell the stories, and but he didn't want to go on camera. He was always telling me stuff behind the scene. He was very, very paranoid. And I would have never thought that he would uh, pull a stunt like this. Every time I see him, I would always say, are we still paranoid? Are we still paranoid? And he would whisper to me. And I would say, oh, there's a cop right there. And he goes, shh. LeBlanc recalls seeing Raymond again, this time in 2018, just two weeks before the murders. Raymond was sitting at a local coffee shop, reported to have been sitting with his eyes wide, never uttering a word, and staring into the distance for hours on end. When asked about this interaction, LeBlanc had this to say. He was sitting on a table outside a coffee shop about two weeks before the tragedy happened, and he was just staring and staring. He wasn't moving, just staring. I took a picture of him, and then I came right close to him, and I said, are we still paranoid? And he looked at me, and I said, look at this. Then he asked, he said, Charles, Charles, can you delete that picture? Sure, no problem. I deleted it, and next thing you know, two weeks later, the tragedy happened. Charles LeBlanc goes on to reference the video he had taken of Raymond a year earlier. He explains how Raymond's behavior at the coffee shop more recently, just weeks before the shooting, was noticeably different. When he first had this sandwich sign, and he was just standing there, and I was surprised that, you know, we had a little, I, I saw him, I didn't have my camera on, and I said, wow, what are you doing? And then we talked for about five, ten minutes. And I said, hold it, hold it. I got to put my camera on. 
And the way he was talking, and I mean, you know, you knew there was something wrong. Charles's intention as a hobbyist blogger was simply to film current events that were going on in and around Fredericton. When he realized how crucial this video footage of Raymond was, he brought it to the attention of the courts. This was the only piece of video evidence where Raymond was seen demonstrating his radical and quite frankly, nonsensical beliefs publicly. Aside from home video ramblings of Raymond shooting guns in the woods alone and the extensive library of Rob Lee's videos saved to his computer, this particular video of Raymond wearing the sandwich board became crucial evidence in the case. Charles LeBlanc admits that this video he took of Raymond was a huge contribution in assisting to what would ultimately become the end result and the final verdict of the trial. I said, listen, I got a tape here. Maybe you'd like to watch or his lawyer. And uh, that's where it came public. That was the only known video at the time of Matthew Raymond. They did show the video that you see in me and Matthew. They did show it during during the trial. They even showed it uh, twice. It's, uh, they showed it in final arguments and during during the trial. There's no question about it. Did that video help uh, in Matthew Raymond's case? There's no question about it. It showed the direct question, the direct answers, and you knew right off the bat right there that uh, there was something wrong here. Matthew Raymond's defense team would plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Here is Raymond's lawyer out in front of the courthouse in Fredericton, Monday, August 27, 2018, just weeks after the shooting. When asked by the media about his client's physical and mental condition, as well as whether or not he had any moral qualms with attempting to get a murderer a lesser sentence, he had this to say. Well, he's, he's in shock and, and uh, he's in custody, so uh, he's not feeling well in, in those regards, but, he, but he's looking forward to defending this case vigorously and, and I expect that at some point in time we will be able to comment and, and shed some light on the circumstances of the case. In his physical condition, are you able to speak on that? Uh, he's in fairly poor physical condition. Uh, he's receiving medical treatment, but he's in, he's in, he's in poor physical condition. Uh, we'll indicate our intentions in terms of a plea, whether it's guilty or not guilty. At this time, I expect that at some point in time there'll be a not guilty plea entered. How did he end up with you? Uh, well, I was appointed by the government. Okay, I work out of Toronto. Uh, my firm is in Toronto, but I also uh, work in St. John and live in St. John now. So. so you're being paid through legal aid? I don't know if I should comment on where I'm being paid, but I was appointed by the government. But on a, on a personal level, why did you accept to, to, to defend uh, Mr. Mr. Raymond? Well, I understand that this, as a New Brunswicker, I understand that this case is a tragedy. Uh, and of course, I can't understand it the way that the victims of the, uh, of the events understand it. Uh, but, and I know full well that um, uh, the public is very upset about this. At the same time, uh, I understand that the, the rule of law, the laws in Canada require that every person who's accused of a crime receive the defense of a lawyer who will honestly uh, and diligently advance their side of the story in the case uh, and give that person the benefit of every uh, uh, right or procedure under the law. And so I have no uh, misgivings whatsoever about defending him truthfully and to the extent that the law offers, uh, because otherwise I wouldn't be living up to my uh, obligation to promote the rule of law. Raymond would go on to admit to the murders in court, but insisted he was not in his right state of mind. He eventually would take the stand in his own defense, telling the jury that in the year leading up to the shooting, he believed that everything was scripted and that society was a Truman Show-esque play written by dark forces. Raymond told the jury that these ideas began to fade 
only during his second mandated stay at a psychiatric facility after the murders had already occurred. He went on to say that in the year leading up to the attack, he became increasingly more convinced that he was somehow chosen and given permission by God to find and eliminate the demons that were among him. He experienced hallucinations just days before the shooting, stating that a child floated up to his bedroom window and said, quote, Come outside and play, baby. In Raymond's mind, he took this as a sign from God that it was time, a call to action, if you will, and that the end of times were here. Also, in the days leading up to the shooting, Raymond admits that there were several close calls where he had aimed his gun at residents leaving the apartment, but that he never pulled the trigger. One person that Raymond admits to almost firing at was a young man wearing a Superman t-shirt, walking on the apartment complex's sidewalk. Raymond believed the Superman S to be a symbol, meaning serpent. He would hold his fire, however, for the time being, until August 10th. One can only wonder how many other lives were spared in the days leading up to the attack, and who else might have been killed if he had decided to take action earlier. Raymond also admitted to the court that he stayed up a full 24 hours the night before the shooting, frantically writing down numbers and equations, desperately trying to make sense of them into the early morning hours. He eventually used all of the ink from his pen. He then scrambled to find a pencil and continued on with his writings until he decided to aim and take fire just after 7 o'clock in the morning. When the courts asked Raymond, why were the demons against you? In a dissonant and monotone voice, Matthew Raymond replied, quote, Because they knew who I was, because of the protest. Forensic psychiatrist Dr. Scott Woodside spent six and a half hours with Raymond in an attempt to evaluate his mental state at the time of the murders. Woodside stated, however, that Raymond's unwillingness to provide him with certain details limited his professional ability to properly assess whether or not he should be held criminally responsible. Yet even with Raymond having not been fully cooperative with Dr. Woodside, he would ultimately diagnose Raymond with a, quote, delusional disorder, specifically that he was suffering from grandiose delusions. Now it was up to a jury of his peers to decide if it was more likely than not that Matthew Vincent Raymond's mental state impaired both his ability to make rational decisions, but also to understand the gravity of those actions. Ultimately, the courts would deem Matthew Raymond not criminally responsible by reason of insanity in November of 2020, an outcome we rarely see in the United States of America, but one that is not unheard of in countries like Canada. After a grueling nine-week trial, jurors were presented with evidence such as LeBlanc's interview footage, among the many other materials that demonstrated Raymond's detachment from reality, his delusions, and his paranoia of a pending apocalypse that would ultimately never come. Sadly, the only true, quote, end of times was the fate of Raymond's victims. The families naturally would struggle in accepting a non-guilty verdict, which the jury had reached after four days of deliberations. We were able to connect with Melissa Robichaud, Donnie Robichaud's ex-wife. She shared with us her frustrations when asked if she believed justice had been served in the case. I do not believe justice was served at all. He will walk the streets again, and nothing about that is okay. And my own thoughts, if he didn't go to prison for life, justice won't be served until he's dead. 
We also asked Melissa what she thought, if anything, could have been done to prevent a crime such as this from happening. I think there's a few things that could have been done to prevent this. In my own personal opinion, his mother could have asked for help when she had seen him act indifferent or she became scared of him herself or the rest of the family. Why did he have so much ammo? Robert Costello's wife, Jackie McLean, had this to say about the finality of the case, particularly in regards to her late husband. Obviously, the mental health system failed the Raymond family in the first place, and now I feel as though the criminal justice system has failed us. Jackie was seen wearing a blue ribbon pinned to her shirt throughout the trial to honor the fallen police officers. Matthew Raymond is currently being held and treated at the Restigouche Hospital Center in Campbellton, New Brunswick. Blogger Charles LeBlanc decided to hit the streets with his camera once again following the shooting, this time speaking to someone that knew Matthew Raymond personally, a friend of his named Bryce. Charles spoke with Bryce at length about the tragedy in an attempt to understand why someone would do this and what his state of mind must have been at the time of the crime. But again, did it change your views on what's going on? Mental illness. Mental illness, man, it's a real thing. You know, uh, I... Uh, there's, a, there's a stigma around mental illness. Um, it's almost like, what, why are you mentally ill? Don't do that. But like mental illness is a, is, is a, is a very, very, very real thing. Um, myself, I have a mental illness. I'm on medication for it. And if I don't take my medication, I turn into like a total, a total lunatic. Like I get delusional and everything else, I have to be hospitalized. You took your medication this morning? I actually forgot. Oh, I yeah. usually, usually remember oh, yeah. it's, it's because I came down to court today. It's something out of the blue. I noticed you were different. And so, uh-huh. uh, okay, am I in trouble? Do I got to wash myself? Or? No, I'm, yeah, no, I'm in my normal frame of mind. In no way does Bryce show characteristics of a potential threat or displaying warning signs of violent tendencies during this interview. It is important to note, however, that neither did Matthew Raymond. Bryce acknowledges his mental illness in the interview and states that he is a totally different person when off his medication. These observations are important for the mere purpose of demonstrating that people who struggle with persistently severe mental illness are all around us. These disorders are extremely common, yet, if left untreated, can lead to potentially unpredictable and at times dangerous outcomes. Though the shooter's friend admits here to not being medicated during the taping of this interview, as LeBlanc laughs it off, attempting to keep things lighthearted, just as he had in his interview with Matthew Raymond, Bryce does make some clear and concise points. He goes on to say something to the effect of, When someone has a broken leg, you can see that they're suffering from that broken leg. Mental illness, on the other hand, you simply cannot. Matthew Raymond had no substantial criminal record prior to the shooting, which would understandably lend to the reasoning behind how he obtained a firearms license. The rifle used is known to be a common firearm among gun owners, and in northern Canada, where hunting for sport is a regular activity, Matthew Raymond went unnoticed and under the radar. Yet the question still remains, how are we, the public, expected to protect ourselves? And what violent warning signs did Matthew Raymond truly exhibit? other than being strange, hateful, and believing in fringe conspiracy theories. Well, 
that might unfortunately be the most frightening aspect of it all, that no one could have known what Matthew Raymond was preparing to do. A man that virtually spoke to no one, a recluse who never had any guests inside of his home, his only friend, the darkest corner of the internet. Raymond became obsessed with consuming misinformation about immigrants and demon numerology to the point of thinking everyone around him was out to get him. But we as the public don't have the privilege of seeing what goes on behind closed doors, let alone inside of someone's mind. On the street, someone may seem friendly enough, but we have no real basis of knowing what's going on inside of that person's head, let alone in their home or apartment. And a sickness as severe as what Matthew Raymond had certainly is not tangible. It's almost never as cut and dry in terms of both prevention as well as solutions to these type of actions. Be that as it may, the result of this case is clearly controversial. Whichever side of the argument you're on, there's no denying that mental health certainly played a major role. When Donnie Robichaud's ex-wife Melissa was called down to the police station and asked if she would like to pick up her late ex-husband's belongings, she drove there immediately and without hesitation. The most memorable of the items collected was a Harley Davidson dog tag stained with Donnie's blood that he was wearing the morning of his murder. Melissa still has that dog tag to this day. The pennant was a symbol of protection to keep Donnie safe while riding his motorcycle. He never took it off. Etched on the back in small writing is a poem entitled A Biker's Prayer. May the sun ride in front of me, the rain fall behind me, and the wind follow me. May the angels guard my travels, for they know what is ahead of me. Keep me safe through the rolling hills and swirling turns. Let the eagle guide me to the mountaintops. Let the moon's light guide me through the night. Lord, thank you for letting me be a biker. My sons and I are holding up as best as we can. We have our days. We talk about him a lot. We love and miss him every day. He's always going to be a part of our lives. My kids are accomplishing so much. These are times when Donnie should be here. That's the hard part. We'd like to personally thank Charles LeBlanc and Melissa Robichon for speaking with us for this episode. Perhaps a light at the end of this dark tunnel was learning that Melissa and Donnie's two sons, Zachary, age 20, and Drayden, age 18, are doing well. Drayden just graduated from high school, bought a 2014 Kia Forte, and has a great girlfriend, according to his mother. Zachary has a full-time job and plans to move to Alberta this summer. The boys are coping the best way they know how, and excelling in life as they move forward into adulthood. Melissa says that her youngest, Drayden, won't leave a room without telling his mother he loves her. She says he'll even wake her up if he has to leave early for work just to say, I love you. She says the boys remind her so much of their father, loving and hardworking guys, showing an interest in motorcycles. She says hopefully one day soon, she'll get to see the boys riding Donnie's bike. Though the cliche, life is short, certainly is true. The victims' families of the Fredericton shooting are forced to live and cope with a new horrible exaggeration of that phrase as they try to move forward and heal one day at a time. 